Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. It's a beautiful spring day. It's uh, absolutely gorgeous. It's that time of the year where the bunny rabbits are out. The leaves are on the trees, the blossoms showing, and yesterday we had snow. Can you believe that? It's one of those times. Welcome to welcome to my guest, Susan Bauer-Wu, and welcome to a podcast from someone based in the UK. And hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Russell. It's really delight, delightful for me to be here with you. Great. Well, I can tell by the accent you're not from the place I'm in. So where in the world are you? I know. I- I'm actually in Charlottesville, Virginia, about two hours from Washington, D.C., although I do have a daughter who lives in Edinburgh, and I go go back there quite often, and two grandsons that are there. Okay, very good. That's another country, you know that. uh, We we don't talk a lot about Scotland over here. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm in the north of England, so not far from Scotland at all. Mm. So, uh, well, it's a delight to meet you. Well, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. So um, I am president of a nonprofit organization called the Mind and Life Institute. And our mission for Mind and Life is basically bridging science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action to create positive change in the world. Uh, Organization was founded 35 years ago, co-founded by the Dalai Lama. And um, we have been giving research grants and running educational programs that basically um, foster inquiry and helping people to ask deeper questions about what really really matters and how we understand the mind and, and understand one another. So that's, that's what I'm doing now. I've been uh, leading Mind and Life for eight years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started my career as a registered nurse though. That was um, about 40 years ago, worked in oncology and hospice. And then got my PhD and became a researcher and then ultimately found my way here. Very interesting. Um, So what was the attraction of coming to work with this organization? Well, I I had been, my most recent work was in academia and I was a professor and a researcher. And much of my research was around uh, the science of meditation. Right. And I was um, particularly focused on teaching meditation practices to people who are experiencing cancer mm. um, and going through cancer, as well as other life limiting illnesses. That was my program of research. And Mind and Life um, has created this incubator 
for meditation researchers. So that's, I got involved with it way before I started leading the organization. And when the opportunity came for me to, you know, be in this leadership role, I recognized that it um, had the um, power to perhaps have a larger impact. Um, we're an international organization. Most of our educational programs include people from every continent, um, except Antarctica. And, um, and it feel, it's, just, it's been really, really meaningful for me over the time I've been doing this. Mm. And so you say it was founded by the, the Dalai, Dalai Lama. Tell me about that, uh, that story. That's fascinating. How did that all come, to, come about? Yeah, well, you know, he's a, a very, very smart and compassionate person. And he also says if he wasn't a modest monk, that he basically would have been an engineer or a scientist. Mm. He loved science. And, you know, Buddhist inquiry actually is based on um, investigation. Mm. It's about investigation of your mind, investigation of the present moment. And he says, um, you know the truth, you figure it out for yourself. And that's sort of at, at the heart of um, His Holiness's teachings is that, and as well as bringing a compassionate and wise heart to it. And so 35 years ago uh, was the first, what was called the Mind and Life Dialogue, and it was His Holiness with Western scientists, researchers, philosophers, uh, humanists. And they basically just got together um, in his living room just to talk, just to talk about science, talk about the nature of mind, talk about the nature of what it means to be, to be human. And in um, those um, early days, it was, there was not a plan to have an organization by any means. It was completely grassroots and completely from a spirit of mm. um, shared learning. Mm. And through those, you know, and, and essentially um, the Dalai Lama enjoyed hanging out with scientists and philosophers and humanists and um, and they did and they did as well. Everybody, mm. it was like, you know, it was so rich and they were learning from each other. And we recorded all that Mind and Life Institute. We have 35 years of archival footage and we're actually putting it out in the next month in a digital dialogue that people can search and um, search the, the transcripts, search the videos and to, to just learn over the last 35 years how these conversations have unfolded. Mm. And, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because, uh, okay, well, I mean, there's so much you give me to think about there. So let's, let's, start, let's start with the basics. Mm. So, so you're looking at the, the role of science with spirituality as opposed yeah. to science and religion. Is that, is that an important place to start? I do think it's a place, an important place to start, but it doesn't exclude religion. Right. So I think it includes religion and many of the, the conversations and dialogues that we've had over the decades have included a variety of religious and spiritual leaders. So it doesn't exclude it, but I do think that if you say religious, it doesn't necessarily include non-religious traditions such as indigenous wisdom and others who are drawn to spirituality and deeper inquiry about nature of um, our lives and the meaning of our lives that um, come that is not within a religious context per se. Right. 
So, so basically been running conventions and teachings and learnings and such like, and you've digitized those and you now have those to offer as products. That makes sense. So you've got all this collaborative learning, which is fantastic. Um, and obviously that's the point of the organization, um, which again, makes a lot of sense. Um, mm -hmm. So, but why, why is this, why this, why the link between science and spirituality? Is, is there some sort of frenetic need to prove something or... Why do you pull those two communities together? Well, again, the way the way it happened was organically, like through the Dalai Lama and through scientists and philosophers getting together. And then through my leadership, uh, you know, something that's been really important to me is that we don't just have intellectual conversations, but we we connect this kind of inquiry with matters um, that matter in the world. Right. And so like my latest book, which is a mind and life book, is called A Future We Can Love, how we can reverse the climate crisis through the power of our hearts and minds. And it's being released in June of this year, 2023. And to me, and it was inspired actually by a conversation with it that happened in January 2021 with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, with Greta Thunberg and climate scientists. Mm. And so it's not just at this point in time, I feel like we have to go beyond just curiosity, which is so important. That's how the greatest innovations happen. That's how we come together, take down, you know, our um, our divisions of us versus them, self versus other, because that's just creating more division. But how we can really, um, you know, bridge different ways of understanding, different ways of learning, mm -hmm. and connect that with the most important issues in the world. To me, I can't think of, you know, there, there are a lot of important things, but to me, it's like really, really critical because everybody's invited into that conversation. And so is the aim to make a change through the efforts of the community of people, or are you lobbying and working politically as well? Yeah, we don't work, we don't directly do that, but I know indirectly that our work impacts that. And so there are people who are on the front lines of um, a policy making or on the front lines of teaching in classrooms or working in hospitals um, or you know community workers or climate activists that are absolutely inspired by the work that that we do that then bring those teachings and those learnings out into you know their work in the world interesting so so it's really interesting that you've you've attempted to link the pragmatism of the real world with the the practice of the the scientific endeavors and spirituality that you pull together that makes a lot of that's sort of a nice way of pulling it together isn't it so so why climate change i mean it's obvious to me why climate change but for those people that might not mm. be convinced why would you tackle climate change as a subject well just me speaking as a regular person who is a citizen on this planet just like you russell on, and I care about a lot of things. I, you know, I'm the kind of person who I, you know, from the time I was a little girl, I care about things and I try to make my community better, try to make the world better. At this moment in time, though, I cannot think of anything more mm. important. It is all hands on deck. Time is of the essence. We haven't crossed the tipping point, but we're getting close. And every single person is affected. And I, you know, I, I find it hard to believe that there are climate deniers that, that still are out there. But I think if people, again, are just mindful and wake up to 
um, the world around them, the weather that they're experiencing or people that they know that live in other parts of the world, um, they will they will see that this is this is not a joke and it's very real and, and it's, it's not and it's not too late. Uh, no, Oof, but it's awfully close. But um, but it's interesting, isn't it? The way the debate seems to be going, and this might be completely wrong, but only my own perception that we seem to have a an ever more extreme set of factions. The people on the climate denying side and such like the big powers, the oil companies, all that sort of stuff, the fossil fuel lobby and such like, a bit like the smoking lobbies used to be years ago, they're increasingly working against this. And then you have an increasingly marginalised but vocal community of people who are working on the other side. What seems to be missing is that middle ground. Um, I just wonder what you Uh think about that. Well, I, yeah, actually, you know, the, the book, my hope is that the people who read the book are, you know, people that are more like, like you and I, in a way, because I'm, I'm not, I'll be honest, at this point in time, I'm not a climate activist, although I'm starting to get pretty motivated to do more than I've been doing. And I, it, it's going to take the, just the regular people who want to just live a decent life and really care about their children and their grandchildren and their great grandchildren. That's right. You know, the book is called A Future We Can Love. Mm. It's like we have to go beyond just our everyday comforts and just, you know, wanting to live our lives, just, um, you know, being blind to the realities of what is before us. But it's it's fascinating, isn't it, when you, uh, you go around the world, as I do, and uh, mm-hmm. you look at the Scandinavian countries who, like everything in this, are far ahead. To a certain extent, China, very green, uh, lots of solar power, it's parts of a, parts of Africa. Then you go to America that talks about this all the time, and it's it's nowhere near. I mean, I was really surprised to be in the southern states and drinking out of plastic straws and you know, using know. plastic bags, and and it's it, and I often find it very odd that the sort of the, the the demands are coming from America, but they're not actually doing anything about it themselves. So. How do, how do you mobilize this group of people? Because it seems that, to me that the mobilization is the point that's wrong. Forget the fact that you haven't won the argument. It's the mobilization of the center that's missing, really. Yeah, I think it's actually happening. So I do I do think that On the there, edges. Um, I think it's starting to happen more. I, yeah. I really I do think that it, that there there are people that I even know in my personal life who haven't really quite got it. You know, for for example, um, I you know my my brothers are big golfers, and I kind of have a little bit of judgment about the care of 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 the all the um, costs to the environment in creating golf courses, basically for a small number of privileged people who want to take advantage of it. Like, mm-hmm. and so. I've been in conversation with one of my brothers about this and he actually, I was to my, just my um, surprise, pleasant surprise is that I learned that actually there's a whole green golf movement that they're looking at and not just green grass, but really looking at having much more um, sustainable and environmentally conscious um, decisions that are made. And that's happening here in America. I know it's happening in other parts of the world as well. So I think it's moving beyond the fringes. I hope it is. I sense it is from the people that I'm talking to. 
And I think that um, there, you know, there's a, um, a, a scientist, a, a climate scientist, who's also really um, big into communication and how to talk about climate change. And her name is Catherine Hayhoe. And she, she's based in Texas, oil country, right? Mm. And one thing she, she talks about is that we don't, you know, the moment we start like talking about climate change, it can turn people off. It can mm. scare people. And why does it scare people? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different reasons why, but we feel like, you know, we don't know enough, we're not intelligent enough, or we're afraid that we have to change how we're living, or we don't we think it doesn't affect us. It's really not about us. It's about some somebody else. And what she encourages us to do is to actually begin to talk about um, climate in ways that you don't actually use that word so it doesn't turn people off and you begin at a point where everybody um, you you connect with them in what they care about in what they care about so if for some people actually who money might be the most important thing okay so i don't want to be you know judgmental and to write them off because there's a lot of people in this this world that are like that, that money is really important. But those people who, all, who have money also have children and they have grandchildren. And they can also realize that right now, invest, there are different ways of investing in innovations to address climate change that can still you know, have a you know, positive impact on their, their pocketbook, if, if you will. Yeah, you see, that's a really fascinating view, isn't it? And um... I'm minded to think of the work of George Bernard Shaw, who said that something along the lines of all progress depends on the unreasonable man. This idea that actually it's, it is, we've, we're spending so much time being reasonable, we're, we're losing the speed. I mean, we changed the word on the behest of the climate tonight is from global warming to climate change. But actually, we are having global heating. That's actually what's oh, happening here. Yeah. And sh people should be frightened because that's how you take action. People should be having changed because that's how you know you're making a difference. And I just wonder sometimes whether we, we, we treat people so much like children that we lose the resilience that comes from treating them like adults, you know, building the capacity and such like, you know, there are hard messages, you know, the thing is that you can be making millions from solar power. I mean, and, you know, if you go to the Far East and the uh, Middle East, you'll see huge ranges of solar power. There's loads of money to be made. But what we mm -hmm. do is we sort of skirt around the issue instead of, you know, legislating. The fact is, without political will, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very difficult exercise. And until you get someone liberated at the tops of organizations, it's like the classic change problem. So, you know, they're not going to change, so we have to. So we've got to start standing up. In this country, we have all these people gluing themselves to the floor and Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop mm -hmm. Oil and all these different things. And and there is change happening because people mm -hmm. notice, a bit like uh, Black Lives Matter and um, the Me Too movement, that, mm -hmm. was, that was the behest of the unreasonable man. I'm doing parentheses at the moment because it mm -hmm. wasn't all men. But you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, yeah. just wonder, I just wonder whether we've lost that campaign, that spirit of getting out there because we're too frightened to offend people at the moment to say what needs to really be said. Yeah. I, I think what you just said is really, really spot on and very well said, well said, Russell. Um, we need to not be afraid. Mm. 
mm-hmm. and we have to make we have to make people at the top accountable yeah. and you know in the places where we're fortunate to have democracies is that we actually have to vote and to get people uh, leaders in power who actually care about this yeah and it's not it it's not just window dressing it's not just you know saying the right things but we have to hold them accountable and the problem is we it. we have political systems that mitigate against it you you're going to have potentially two ancient old white blokes who are going to potentially bore each other to sleep at the next ex- next election neither of which you believe in this subject really and certainly your senate and you know uh, other places just don't. We've got the same problem over here, you know, increasingly as our government's lurching to the right across the whole of um, sort of the just what used to be called the democratic world. We're all we're all focused on the a march to the right wingism rather than climate change. Uh, I mean, yeah. I look at the vitriol that is turned against Greta Thunberg in, in this country. It's it's horrendous how depersonalized and attacked she is for saying the most obvious things somehow somehow the message isn't crossing through so somehow the message has to change isn't it well i'd love to hear more about why you think that's the case i'd love to and but i think what's happening in the i mean we we can we can get derailed here so i don't want to do that but i i do think that there are it's all about resilience isn't it for me it's all about the resilience of the planet and how you learn and move things forward just as you're saying really yeah it is Yet we, we, us and our contemporaries don't want to change because we're comfortable. We're comfortable with the way we're living our lives and having what we want when we want it, right? And we don't want to be shaken in a way that we we maybe have to change or we're too, too scared to change. But I also wonder, you know, it's the message, like what, what do you think it is about Greta that turns people off? Because is she saying something that's so uncomfortable that they don't want to hear it? Or is it because she's like, you know, finger pointing in a way that turns people off and they don't want to, and, and older people like us don't want to be told from a young person, but that's I will it. tell you the young people like there is a strong movement of young people that give me hope yeah but it's always been the case hasn't it every generation of 16 to 25 year olds are the people who change the planet for the next group you know go back to the hungry and uprisings of the 50s through to the 60s it's always young people and it's always yeah. usually older people are holding back because they have everything to lose and very little to gain from the change but th- yeah. this is this is bigger than all of us and it's a fascinating subject so tell me sorry i know you tell me about the book because obviously reading the book is obviously going to throw more light on this so tell me about the book and what's in it and who's it for yeah um well the book is for to me really everybody and mostly for people who I think are, who care. So I think for people who don't care, who are total deniers and are gonna find, you know, be be critical of anything related to this topic. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think we we push it, you know, we, we encourage them, but I think everybody else, I think anybody who cares, who feels scared, who has children and grandchildren and, wants to learn what they could do how they can you know lead their their lives in a way that's in alignment and you you know the way the book is is written it's in it's in four parts and it goes from knowledge 
to capacity, to will, to action, mm, and those four parts. And so the knowledge is um, one thing to recognize is that there's something in, um, in the climate science called climate feedback loops that I didn't know about mm -hmm. until I started, in, until I, I learned about the, this topic from a, a colleague that created these free videos. If you want to learn about climate science, it's, it's they're called climate emergency feedback loops, and they're available in 27 languages, freely available online. And when I got turned on to climate feedback loops, I was like, wow. Feedback loops are basically that the earth is getting hotter and hotter. And the hotter it gets, the worse it gets. It's like a, it, it's these, these positive feedback loops. We That's, see it in the weather. We see it in the weather every single day, don't yeah. we? Yeah. Oh, I wanted to say something that you said earlier about the word like global warming and to climate mm. change. That woman that I mentioned earlier, that scientist, she uses a term that I, I think is more like accurate. It's called global weirding. Yeah, it's a good one. I like that. Global weirding, meaning that it's the weather is unpredictable. It's it's very unpredictable. And so for people who say, you know, what do you mean, you know, global warming? It's so cold where I live. And well, okay, that's not the point. It's it's that basically the weather pattern patterns are changing because the earth is warming, the atmosphere is is warming, and it's it's creating these crazy changes. So it's it's global weirding. So anyway, the, the book talks about the science of climate feedback loops. And that also is where the promise is, is because once we can begin to start cooling the planet, the feedback loops can go in the opposite direction. And there could be a, a, this, this rapid feedback of cooling that can take place. Well, we saw some of that in the pandemic, didn't we? We saw the mm -hmm. the, the readjustment of some of the levels. You know, we saw, we saw the difference in... Uh, sea movement, sea creature movement, because cruise ships were operating. We saw um, all sorts of things when the humans weren't there. And in a funny sort of nihilistic way, what you might argue that actually we should actually get on with the global warming and much quicker, eradicate the human race, and then basically the planet will settle itself down. But that's, There's a lot of people who say that. Well, that's the sort of guy. Probably, probably true. Yeah. It's the guy in movement, isn't it? And and that's a thought, yeah. isn't it? Because, uh, you know, there's a view in uh, one view is that humans are the virus that's come onto the earth, earth to consume it and destroy it's destroy the host as it were anyway that's far yeah. too philosophical for yeah. where we're going today yeah so, so, so uh, uh, tell yeah, me more about be, the book sorry yeah, I'll, I'll, just, I'll keep I'll, interrupting no 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 you didn't interrupt you got me um, too interested that's the trouble <laughs> um and then we then i also talk about human feedback loops so so the so the the, the first um chapter in the first section is about climate feedback loops, and then we have human feedback loops. And the human feedback loops are basically our greed, you know, greed, hatred, and desire, and that we, uh, and delusion. And the delusion part is that we don't see ourselves as interconnected. We see ourselves as just sort of safe and, you know, and, and solitary all by ourselves and with our family. But the truth is, everything we eat, the air we breathe, what we buy, where we buy, we are all interconnected, yeah. not only within our communities, but within this whole entire um, planet Earth, which is, which is our home. So, um, and, and greed is an important part. It's just liking, liking things and wanting things because we think things will make us happy. Mm. And when, you know, when I, I one of my, my greatest wishes for my, my grandsons who are now four and one, five and one, 
That stuff isn't going to make them happy. But the but you see, but this is the challenge, isn't it? It's our generation that created this problem because our generation brought them up to be desiring of things. They were poorly parented by our generation. And and, I, and you can't blame the current generation for wanting things when we brought them up to expect that. And and I think we don't take the accountability for our, in our generation saying, we messed up here, so how do we put this right? Yeah. And I think we're always blaming blaming the youngsters for being I mean, the words that are thrown at the current generation are pretty horrendous. And um, and then you talk and look at parents who have no skill in parenting. Yeah. So it's and, yeah, I, I like uh, yeah. I like the I think the point of human feedback limbs is absolutely critical for me because unless we fix that, nothing else will nothing yeah. will change, will it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um and then the third set the next part is about capacity and the capacity is earth's capacity just as you said earlier the earth's capacity to heal and then we have human capacity and the research shows psychological research human behavior research shows time and time again we can change yeah we can change and so we talk about how we can begin to think about changing third part of the book is about will and it's broken up into two parts which i see is like two sides of the same coin one side is about climate grief. Grief is changing our old ways, maybe. And also grief that every day, thousands and thousands of species are dying. Yeah. It's, re- it's real. There's other, there's, you know, climate refugees that are losing their homes. There's a lot of grief associated with it. And we need to be real about that. And the flip side is what we call, I'm calling, and, and Matthew Ricard, the Buddhist teacher, from France calls wonderment or awe, where basically, if we actually just pause in any given day and just look outside, look around, you, you the way you started the show was perfect. Noticing the, the bunny rabbits and the leaves on the trees and we close our eyes and we smell and we hear the birds. There's, um, we can be nurtured in any any moment by what's right here before us and by tapping into that that actually helps us with our grief and our anxiety Mm. and then finally the book ends on action and there's not just one checklist that's perfect for everybody and so we actually offer a variety from a lot of experts in the field and a lot of just really wise spiritual people and activists and and scientists and and others of just some suggestions that you can pick and choose and the most important things for climate actions are the ones that you actually um, are inspired to do and can do and every and i believe every little bit matters Mm -hmm. and i also think it's really important what i have found personally helpful is to realize i'm not alone there's a lot of people who care about this there's eight billion people on this planet and if we can get even you know a quarter of us going on this it can just you know continue to spread and i believe we can turn this around so are you optimistic for the future i actually am i actually am i wasn't when i started working on the book but when i've learned about the amazing things that are happening in every corner of this every corner of every continent 
And I, I believe not only in Earth's capacity to heal, but I do believe in our human capacity to care for one another, to care for our, our future and our kids and our, our ability to change. And what, when, when we decide to do something, um, look at what we've done in the past. We, if we decide to do it, we can do it. And um, I'm, I'm not ready to give up, but time is of, of the essence. So on that optimistic note, you better remind people um, the name of the book, where to find it, and how they can find out more about the uh, the, um, the Mind Life organization. Okay. Um, so thank you, Russell. Um, the book is called A Future We Can Love, um, How We Can Reverse the Climate Crisis Through the Power of Our Hearts and Minds. So it's available starting um, June 13th. You could pre-order it before June 13th, but after June 13th, it's available. Um, anywhere. Um, don't want to pick and pick and choose. You can find your, your local bookseller or online. And uh, Mind and Life Institute is mindandlife.org. And you can learn more about our programs there. Many of them, most of them are actually free and any of them that you have to pay for, we have very generous scholarships. Brilliant. Well, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you. You've got me all intrigued and apologies for slightly taking more of your time than I should. So thank you for spending time with us today. Thank you, Russell. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Super. You take care. You too. Hi, everybody. I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed. And if you're in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.